All right, let's have a word of prayer first. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you for a new day. And Lord, I pray that as we're sharing today, your word will reach each one of our hearts and teach us what we need to know so that we can grow into your image every day. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, so today we're talking about the secret room, giving God our sexuality. Um, now, this is a, always a hot topic, pardon the pun, right? Everyone wants to think about sex and talk about sex in our modern culture. But as a Christian church, we sometimes are afraid to for some reason. And I think that's just such a tragedy. God has given us this wonderful gift of sex. And now we're living in a super-sexualized society. The devil is just taking God's great gift and wreaking havoc and turning it into a terrible, poisonous, deadly evil. But it's not the way God intended. God wanted sex to be one of the greatest gifts that he could give us. And that's what he wants to give to us now. So we're going to talk about that today. And I wanted to use an allegory. Imagine that your soul is a house. Everything that is important to you and who you are is pictured as a house. And off of this house, there's one room, a secret room. You can even think of it as an underground room, something that isn't flaunted to everyone else in the world. It's a special place that is only for you and for God. And someday, when you find your best friend for life, you marry that person, and that day, their house and your house are joined together by the secret room, the special place that only the two of you will share. This is what God wants sexuality to be. It's a special place that the two of you will decorate together. It will be an expression of who the two of you are, a beautiful place that only the two of you share, this wonderful experience. This is what God's plan is for sexuality, the sacred place for us to bond with one person for life. It's a beautiful gift and it's something pure and good. Is there anything evil about that plan? Nothing at all. It's a beautiful thing that God wants us to have. But nowadays, if you walk down the street to all the other houses on your street, all of them have taken their secret room and made it into the front porch. It's a, such a nice place. And as you walk down the street, everyone else's house looks so much nicer than yours, right? They have a beautiful place to entertain their guests, to spend time with people, to have a wonderful time with anyone who comes past who they want to spend time with, right? It's their front porch, and it's decorated. It's flaunted. Their sexuality is right out there. Everyone can see what an amazing person they are, and they can share it with anyone they want. When you compare your house to all these other houses on the street with their beautiful front porch secret room, your front porch looks pretty barren doesn't it? You have this empty, boring look. And compared to everyone else, who would ever be interested in me? You know, see, when I, when I tell young ladies, dress modestly, dress like you value yourself, this is what they often hear. They hear, make yourself look like the broadside of a barn, make yourself look as plain and ordinary as possible, and you're just going to look like you're a pioneer woman from a hundred years ago, but maybe you'll finally get a good guy. Or if not, God will be happy with you. Is that God's plan for sexual purity? God is never going to take away good gifts from us. If he says, make your front porch be barren if it must, compared to everyone else's, 
But trust me, I have a beautiful plan for your secret room. You can trust God with your sexuality. He's not going to cheat you. He's not going to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have a wonderful sex life like everyone else out there. You're going to be stuck waiting and waiting and waiting in barren purity until someone comes along that you can marry and then you can only have that one. Everyone else has a wonderful time, but you are stuck. Is God's plan ever less than what, God, what the devil gives us? God's way is always the best. But nowadays, we're living in a culture in which sex sells everything. It is the ingredient. I don't know if you have this um, label over here, big sexy hair. Have you heard of that? I saw this when I was in the store the other night. I, I was just horrified. Big sexy hair? What is that? <laughs> what does my hair have to do with this pure, beautiful, intimate relationship I have with my husband alone? Why would that be everybody's business? Everyone sees my hair, right? But they're, they're wanting to make it into it's what sells cars and what sells cows and what sells anything and everything. If you want to sell something, you add sex into it, and next thing you know, it sells so much better. This is a terrible thing that the devil has done. He's captured one of the greatest gifts of God. And you know, the greater the gift of God, the worse it is when the devil uses it, right? Hasn't God given us the beautiful gift of parenting families? But how terrible is it when the devil gets hold of the, the concept of family, when he causes abuse and neglect? There's no other way that you can so destroy a child's picture of God as to have parents who abuse them, who don't show them what the image of God is and instead show them, no, God is somebody who won't protect you, who hates you, who despises you. Family is a wonderful gift, but it's also a terrible curse when Satan takes over it. It's the same thing with sex. The more beautiful the gift of God, the more devastating it is when the devil gets a hold of it and destroys it. Sin is the problem, not sex. God has given sex as a pure gift but when sin separates sex from purity, intimacy, and relationship, which is what God's context for sex is, when sin gets in there and poisons it, he makes us obsessed with our appearance, with our performance, with comparison. When I talk to people who have been involved sexually before they got married, I don't hear about how glorious and wonderful the devil's way was and how boring it would be to have to live God's way. Instead, I hear the brokenness of how they want to feel pure. They want to be pure, but they're terrified. And then when they're actually sleeping with their husband or their wife, they can't stop themselves from thinking about other people and comparing. Or the woman is telling me, you know, I just, I know my husband slept with other people before me, and now he's just, I can't help thinking, I hope he's not comparing me with her. She was so much more beautiful than me. Her body was so much nicer. You know, when we take away from what God has wanted to give us, we always lose. When sex gets polluted with sin, it gets all dragged through the mud. We have fantasy where people are getting into worse and worse things. Have you heard of Fifty Shades of Grey? How many of you have heard of this? And now it's going to be a movie. This is just one of the worst things ever. When I see a culture that's obsessed with sex, not just sex between two people for gratification, but actually abuse, glorifying abuse, this is a book and now a movie coming out that talks about the glories and glamours of a man brutally abusing a woman. 
and her submitting to this and acting like this is a good thing. And then in the end, they sort of love each other, something like that. What kind of poisonous message does this give to our young people? And the terrifying thing is women are devouring this novel. Pornography, when it gets into people's minds, both men and women, they start acting out what they're seeing on the television, what they're seeing in the movies. And we know that 88% of internet pornography now involves violence or abuse of women or children. This is perfectly horrifying. We are living now in a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation. In Sodom, who did they attack? When the angels came into Sodom, why did they attack the angels? Because they were strangers, right? Why did they attack strangers? You see, in a communal family system like that, you couldn't just attack any woman walking down the street or any man walking down the street because these people have families, right? This woman has a mother, a father, brothers, uncles, people who are going to rise up, they're going to be upset. So if you just attack a random woman in Sodom, you may have the whole family coming after you. But a stranger, a stranger has no system. A stranger has no one to stand up for them. Let me tell you, when we live in a country and a culture and a, a world in which people can attack strangers, in other words, they can watch internet violence, they can watch pornography, they can watch a woman being abused because she has no family to stand up for her. It's the same thing as what happened in Sodom, isn't it? Yes, I know, I wouldn't go assault a woman out on the street, but it's okay to watch on the computer. Even though it's defiling my mind, it's making me do the same thing. She's a stranger, isn't she? We're living in Sodom. We're living in a world where it's not just one city, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, but an entire culture in which people are obsessed with violent, abusive sexuality. It's a terrifying world to live in. And you think now the average ages of first exposure to pornography are between ages 8 and 11 for most children. And there are some children that don't see it until they're 18 or 25. Who else is seeing it at 5, at 3? And how is this affecting these children's minds? Where are we going to be 20 years from now? We need to take the bull by the horns now. We need to get a grip on what sexuality is and give a message of pure sexuality to the world before it's too late for these young people who now are viewing these things and have no concept that this is not normal and healthy. This is not God's plan. We must do something to help overcome this plague. When sex is separated from purity, intimacy, and relationship, it becomes pornographic. It becomes self-obsessive. Things like masturbation take over. We, we become interested in only what gets me pleasure. And when two people who have been addicted to pornography or masturbation, or selfish sex, anything, selfish sex, self-centered sex, get married to one another, they have a very difficult time actually having sex become what God wants it to be, a ministry to one another, a, a relationship in which each person is focusing on the other person, bringing the other person joy. And therefore, as each one of them is trying to pleasure the other person, they're finding joy and depth and intimacy in their relationship like they've never experienced anywhere else. That's God's plan for sex. But the problem is the way that sex is handled in our world today, it interweaves sex with lust and shame. These three together. Now, how many of you have ever baked bread? Anybody here bake bread? I love baking bread. And I enjoy making challah bread, like what's on the screen here. You braid the bread together. 
So I'll separate my loaf of bread into three different pieces and then roll each one out in a long roll and then braid them together. Now it's easy enough to separate each one out, easy enough to roll them, and easy enough to braid them. But after I've let that bread rise for a little while, can I just pull those three apart? What about after I bake it? It doesn't come apart anymore. It's one. And the devil will tell you that once you have defiled your sense of sexuality with lust and shame, that it's never going to come apart. But I have good news for you. We worship a God of miracles, a God who is able to unbraid that, who is able to give beauty for ashes. He can take your sexuality, no matter how much it's been defiled, and he can turn it into something beautiful and pure. He can unweave it from that lust and shame and make it into something beautiful again because sex is a good gift. It's a good gift of God, and he wants to use it to reveal himself to us. I have good news. Your secret room, no matter how much it feels defiled, can be purified by God, and that's his plan for you. That's his plan for every one of us. God wants to reclaim sexuality. He wants us to find worth and love in him, not in how sexy we are. He wants us to find purity and healing in him, and that's true whether you've made mistakes or someone else has made mistakes and sinned against you. He wants us to find freedom from addiction in him. The majority of the world and of the church now is sexually addicted. It's just a reality. Women are obsessed, reading novels, watching impure movies, our music, everything is saturated with sex these days. And we're living in a time, in a culture, in which people just assume this is normal, it's even healthy. You, you read in magazines, it'll say, well, you know, you've got to be sure that you know your body. Do these things so that you can enjoy yourself, that you can maximize your pleasure. It's all about you. You, you know, have you ever walked through the the grocery store aisle as you're checking out and they have these magazines, 50 things your boyfriend wishes you knew how to do in bed. Have you seen these things? Do you know why they write these magazine articles? Because people are bored in bed. That's why. Because they've tried to take God's gift, steal it from themselves for their future, and have it with whoever they have coming around. And what do you know? It's not like it was in the movies. The people on the movies look like they're having such a wonderful, fulfilling experience. But I feel empty. I feel dirty. Why is that? So they think, well, it must be the wrong person. It must be the wrong position. If I can just find ways to please myself more, then I'll be happy. But the bad news is they're never going to find peace and happiness and purity and fulfillment outside of Christ. God wants us to have something different, something better. You see, sex is supposed to be a revelation of the character of God. It's supposed to be a beautiful experience in which we understand more of what God's character is like. Can we be real about this topic? Isn't the world being real about this topic? Let's be real about this topic. When Christ and the church relate to one another, Christ wins our hearts. He woos us. He draws us to himself, doesn't he? He wins our hearts, shows us his love, and then finally we're willing to be vulnerable with him, to be naked and not ashamed with Christ. Isn't that what his plan is for us as a people? to be able to have to the pure knowledge he knows me completely and he loves me completely just the way I am. That's God's plan for sex, for two people to understand more and more of his character as they experience sexuality. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, can it be a scary experience? 
Isn't surrender sometimes scary when we let Christ enter us? It can be frightening. What is he going to do in my life? I'm letting him take control of my life. When I married my husband, I knew I was giving him control of my life. No longer was I going to choose where I wanted to live. No longer was I going to just decide, I think I want to go on a mission trip to wherever. Bye. I didn't have to just raise the money and take off. Now I would have to decide with him. Together, we would make decisions. We would choose what cars we would buy. We would choose how we would discipline our children. We would choose the millions of choices together. That was a little frightening, but thankfully I knew my husband. I knew this man. <laughs> I knew I could trust him with my life, and I've never regretted that decision. It's a wonderful experience being married to a person who teaches you more about the love of God all the time. You see, God's plan for marriage is for sex to be a ministry. Two people pouring out the love of God to one another, being vulnerable, naked and not ashamed with each other, able to be completely honest about all of their faults and their weaknesses. Because when we have that with another person, it's easier to understand how to have that with Christ. And the more we have that with Christ, being able to be naked and not ashamed, knowing he knows all of our faults, the more we can live in vulnerable relationship with another person. It's a cycle because the law of God is a cycle. The more I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the more I can love my neighbor as myself. The more I love my neighbor as myself, the more I grasp the love of the Father for me in giving himself for me, right? God's law is a cycle, a beautiful cycle of understanding more and more of the character of God and being one more and more to a deeper appreciation for him and love for him. What would marriage be without sex? You ever thought about that? What if when I spent time with my husband, when he was just my boyfriend, I decided, you know what? I've decided I just want to be roommates with this guy for the rest of my life. So we have a whole big ceremony and I dress up in a white dress and we go up in front of a whole crowd of our friends and family and we hold hands and we promise that we're going to live together for the rest of our lives. How many of you have ever had a roommate? Anybody ever had a roommate? Have you noticed that living with someone can grate on you? They put the dishes away wrong. They don't clean up after themselves. They want to eat that? And when you're married to somebody, now it's not just you're sharing a house. Now you have to go on vacation together. You have to put up with each other's families. You raise children together till death do you part. Who would make a decision like that to have a roommate? Wouldn't we just do it on a contract basis? Let's agree to be together for this year and we'll see how it goes. Who would make a covenant to live with this person forever till death do us part no matter what? Because you know what the thing is when you get married? The only thing that's guaranteed is you have no idea what's ahead. That's the only guarantee. There's stuff coming at you that you cannot possibly imagine. Both what this person is, you're like, you, you what? You think that? I had no idea you thought that. And I am this selfish? I had no idea I was this selfish. And we're going to go where? And... You have what disease? And uh, you just have no idea what's going to come at you when you marry this person. You promise till death do you part. No matter what comes, we're together. Who would do that with a roommate? What benefit is there? But God has created a relationship in which two people 
will learn about his character in ways that they can never learn any other way because they will share an intimacy, a depth of relationship, a commitment that says, no matter how ugly I find you to be at times, no matter how much I don't like who you are at times, I will love you. And therefore, we learn about the love of God in ways we never could have otherwise. God doesn't call us to have that kind of commitment to every person. We can't. But he wants us to have that kind of deep relationship because we learn so much more about his character. Marriage is not about making us happy. It's about making us holy. As my husband's mentioned, you know, it's not that being in a marriage where two people are committed to holiness and pursuing holiness is not a happy thing. It's the happiest marriage you can have. But if your goal is to be happy, that's a selfish goal, isn't it? If my goal in marrying my husband had been, I just want to be happy. When I dated him, I was happier than when I was single. When I got engaged, I was happier than when I was dating him. Think how happy I'll be when I'm married to him. He will always make me loved, right? He will always make me feel happy. And if ever I want anything, he'll do exactly what I want, right? If we want to go out to eat, he'll let me pick the restaurant, right? If I want to go somewhere on vacation, he'll say, let's go there on vacation. Is this the way marriage works? <laughs> what if I had gone into marriage with that vision of what marriage was and he was going into marriage with the same vision? Isn't it wonderful? Whenever we go out to a restaurant, I'll get to pick it. Whenever we want to go on vacation, I'll get to choose where we go. And she'll say, yes, would this be a marriage of happy happiness and heaven on earth? Not at all. And marriage, when people go into it, the way people typically go into marriage, looking for happiness, it becomes miserable. They're two people trying to squeeze happiness out of the other person, and it doesn't work. God's ideal for sex is that it's something that bonds two people together in a closeness that no one else in the whole world can share with them. They have this secret, special, precious place where they come together and they love one another. Now, that's God's plan for sex. What is Satan's plan for sex? That insecure people will try to get love out of one another. And instead of ministering to each other, the guarantee is when they go into having a sexual relationship outside of marriage, they both know, I'm using you and you're using me. We both know we're taking from each other, cheating one another, using each other, to satisfy ourselves, to find pleasure for right now, even though we know it's going to cost, even though we know it may bring a child into this world that's going to have a terrible difficulty because we've brought this child into the world without a secure home and family. Sex outside of God's plan is a terrible evil because it steals from those who are trying to find a blessing. But there's good news. God wants to restore us to the purity of Eden, God wants us to have what he gave to Adam and Eve as a pure gift in the garden before sin. He wants us to find beautiful healing and holiness and happiness in giving our sexuality to him. Now, to most people nowadays, purity means what? No sex. Stay away. Keep your eyes straight. Don't think about it. Don't look at it. Don't listen to it. Don't, 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 right? God's plan is so much better than that. But in our world, because sin has taken over the area of sexuality, usually words are associated with sex like dirty, right? Lustful. God wants to rescue us from this kind of world. Especially, I find that for people who have been 
either involved sexually outside of marriage or who have gotten addicted somehow or who have been abused by someone else, we find sex to be very dirty. It's a, an idea we don't like. And at the same time, we get obsessed with it. It doesn't make sense, does it? People can't stop thinking about it, but then they find it disgusting and hateful. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, when a person is caught in sexual addiction, this is especially true, because the more you fall into it, the farther you feel from God. So when you long for intimacy, you long for someone to love you and to accept you, to see you as a hopeful being, you feel so far from God. Now I've messed up. I went and I watched that and I knew I shouldn't do it. Then when we're feeling far from God, we're feeling unlovable, we're feeling worthless, we're even more driven to our addiction, aren't we? We need something to kill the pain, something to help us escape from how terrible we feel. And when sexual abuse happens, sometimes it can be even worse. The secret room feels like it's been completely defiled and it's a sin you can't even confess. At least if you've watched something, if you've done something with someone else, you can confess, you can repent. But what about if someone else has abused you? You didn't even make the choice. And now you feel permanently defiled. You can't even confess. You can't even repent. People will sometimes compulsively wash their hands or take showers for hours, even making their hands bloody. Just last week I talked with somebody who would shower for hours and hours after being abused in order to try to get to feel pure again. But this is not God's plan. God has a plan to help us truly find freedom and healing. The sad statistics are that at least one in three women, and I think the statistics are actually not accurate, I think it's more than this, but at least one in three women has been sexually abused. And one in five or six men, and likely more, has been sexually abused. See, if you ask a man, have you ever been sexually abused? Oh, no, no. Well, has anybody ever touched you in a sexual way or made remarks to you that were about your sexuality and made you feel bad? Oh, yeah, that's happened. But they don't consider it abuse because it's so hard for a man to face, I was abused, I'm a victim. You know, nobody wants to think that way, but it's very difficult. But the reality is these statistics are really sobering. Think of your children. If we're living in a world like this, but the majority of people are watching pornography, what is it going to be like the next generation if Jesus doesn't come? He has to come soon because this kind of world is just going to self-destruct. Sexual addiction statistics for you? 42.7% of internet users view pornography. 25% of internet searches involve pornography. Sex is the number one topic searched for on the internet. 38% of adults say it is morally acceptable to view pictures of nudity or sexually explicit behavior. 47% of families say pornography is a problem in their home. And this is Christian families as well as non-Christian families. We find these statistics are similar. 50% of men in the church are struggling with pornography-related issues. 20% of women in the church are struggling with pornography addiction. And research shows that women who are struggling with it are much more likely to take it into daily life and start acting out sexually with men compulsively or being unable to say no to people. It's very frightening. 54% of pastors admitted to viewing internet porn in the last year, 30% in the last month. How many of these men are sexually addicted. It's, it's terrifying, but it's true. And these are only the ones that are watching internet porn. What about magazines? What about novels? What about movies? What about music? There's pornographic music nowadays. 
very popular. It hits the top of the charts sometimes. Horrible music about rape, about abuse, about violence. In one survey, 63% of pastors admitted to struggling with sexual addiction. That's including lusting after women in their churches, in engaging in illicit relationships when they're counseling someone. This is a time that we need to be able to deal personally with people who are struggling with things. Men need to be dealing with men. Women need to be dealing with women. We need to help people with these issues because it's spiraling. It's mushrooming out of control, the sexual addiction problem in our world. Now, God wants to cleanse us from the defilement, both of our own sins and other people's sins against us. But to do so, he has to take different methods. Um, we're going to talk briefly about what, how he does that. The difference between guilt and shame. Here's something that I think is, is crucial for us to understand. God can cleanse us from guilt, and he can cleanse us from shame. But these are two different things, and it's, dis it's important to distinguish between the two as we're dealing with how to purify our secret room. How do you get rid of the junk, the garbage that's in your sexuality, in your perception? When you, you hear the word sex, the sense of defilement or the guilt about things you've done or the shame about things that, that have been done to you, whatever it is, what is the difference between guilt and shame? God can cleanse us from the two different kinds of junk that gets into pollute our secret room. But the two different things have to be dealt with differently. So we're going to talk first about the difference between these two kinds of pollution that get into our secret room. Guilt, first of all, guilt is a message from whom? From God, right. Guilt is a message from God. Guilt is a good thing. Now, people will use these words interchangeably, but for what I'm talking about today, I want to distinguish using these two distinct words so you know which one I'm talking about when I talk about each thing. Guilt is a message from God. It's a good thing. Guilt is a call to repentance. It's the voice of God saying, you need to get rid of your sin. You need to let go of this. It's destroying you. I want to set you free. That's what God says. So guilt is a message of hope. It's a message of truth about the character of God. God says, I am good. I am love. I will purify you. You need to come to me. What does guilt lead us to? Godly guilt leads to repentance. It leads us to repent for our sin, to turn away from it. We don't want to live in this anymore. So you see, if you have sexual sin in your past and you need to confess it, but maybe you felt like you've, you've confessed, you've confessed, but you still feel badly, then what? Is it still guilt? No. That's where we move to shame. Shame is a message from Satan. Shame prevents repentance. Shame says you will never get rid of your sin. Shame is not a message of hope like guilt. If you just let go of it, I will have it. I will take it from you. Shame is a message of hopelessness. There is no hope for somebody like you. You've messed up again and again. You promised God you wouldn't do it, and then you did it again. Now he's going to turn his back on you permanently. Shame is a lie about the character of God. Shame will tell you either God has turned his face from you and is not going to give you a chance again. You've done it again. He's had it with you. Or shame might tell you the opposite. It might tell you, well, if you try really hard, if you beat yourself up for several days or several weeks or several months. If you fast, 
if you study the Bible three hours every day, maybe after a while God will forgive you. And do you know what? It works. Shame works because then you'll start after a few weeks of praying and praying and praying and saying, I'm so sorry, over and over and over and reading the Bible and fasting and whatever it is that the devil tempts you to do to atone for your sin, you'll start feeling better. You'll start feeling like you're cleansed. Do you know what's actually happened when shame does that evil work in your mind? Shame has won the victory. Because when you feel that you can supplement the blood of Christ by your own works, by your own atonement, sooner or later you're definitely going to go back. All the devil has to do is tempt you. When the temptation level rises high enough, you're going to throw in. You're going to go, it's all right. I can atone for it next time too. You cannot help it. You will do it again. If you have atoned for your sin, rather than accepting the atonement of Christ, what you've done is an act of unbelief, isn't it? You've said, Jesus said, if I confess my sin, he will cleanse me. But I feel that I'm not cleansed. So I'm not going to believe his promise. I'm going to believe my feelings. And I'm going to work until I can get him persuaded to let me back in to grace. Then, after a while, when you start feeling, you believe your feelings instead of the word of God. When you start feeling good, you go, there, now I think I'm saved. Now I think he's accepted me back. Finally, I persuaded him. Shame on us. It is the love of God that leads us to repentance in the first place, isn't it? When we pray, when we confess, when we repent, it is God who has led us there. It's guilt that drove us to our knees to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But when we stand up from our knees, we've confessed and we've repented and we still feel polluted, it's shame. It's not guilt. It's not a message from God. It's a message over the devil saying, he didn't really cleanse you. He didn't really do it. Repentance isn't enough. You're going to have to supplement with some good works. But give him some good works and God might be appeased. That's a lie about the character of God, isn't it? Now, a person can say to me, well, then, if I know any time that I commit sexual sin and then I just go pray, confess, repent, and I stand up from my knees and I'm clean, if that's all I have to do, I'm going to keep on sinning. Has the devil ever told you that? I know he's told me that. All you have to do is just say you're sorry and stand up again. Well, go on, enjoy your sin, right? All you'll have to do is just say, whoops, sorry about that, and he'll, he'll cleanse you. You'll be free again. You aren't even going to have to suffer. But you see, it can't be suffering alone that persuades us to follow Christ. It has to be the love of Christ. When I understand that my sin breaks the heart of Jesus Christ, who paid in blood to save me, that's what will turn me from my sin. That's what will make me say, I never want to go back. How could I go back to that? When you stand up from your knees and you still feel the sense of defilement, that's the time to praise God. That's the time to say to him, I am so awestruck at your love for me that while I am this dirty, while I'm this defiled, while I'm this bad, you still see me as so priceless, you say, yes, that's just sin. I already died for it. I want you. I love you like there's nobody else in the universe for me to love. That's the kind of God we serve. When we know his love like that, when we praise him for his love like that, while we're there in the darkness, we find one of the most effective defenses against sin. Who can go back when we know a love like that? You see, this is why 
the woman caught in adultery was willing to follow Jesus to the end of the earth, whereas the Pharisees didn't even care. See, the woman caught in adultery felt her sinfulness. And when we've fallen in sin, there's no sin that makes you feel more defiled than sexual sin. When we've fallen into sin, and then we've beheld the incredible love of Christ, that he says, yes, I know, but I already died for that. I want you, no matter how sinful you are. That's when our hearts are really one to him. The woman caught in adultery felt her sinfulness, and so she stood up cleansed, pure, free, healed. The Pharisees who stood around her hadn't committed that sexual sin, but they went away defiled, impure, polluted, because they didn't see themselves as sinners. It's those who see themselves as sinners that recognize the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. So our very sin, as terrible as sin is, is the thing that can draw us closest to Christ, isn't it? That doesn't mean we abuse grace. That doesn't mean we keep going back because the more I sin and the more I see that he's covered me, the happier I'll be and the more I'll feel loved by him. No, we don't want to break his heart. We love him. But the way we come to love him is often through bringing him our sin. Rather than just saying, Lord, I'm sorry I did this thing, we go back to him and you say, we say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I doubted your love for me. I remember talking with a young woman who was working for the Lord. She was in full-time ministry, but for years she had battled with secret sin, with pornography and with masturbation, and she felt so terrible about it. Finally, she called me. She said, I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my rope. I cannot break free. I cannot find healing and freedom. Please, what can you do to help me? She described to me her sin cycles and what she was doing over and over, and I said, here's the problem. You sin, then you repent, then you stand up from your knees, and you still feel terrible, so you go on trying to persuade God to forgive you. Over and over you try to persuade him, and after a while you start feeling like maybe he's forgiven you because you've tried and tried, but then you fall back into it again. I said, you're confessing the sins that you've done, the behaviors that you've done. You've watched this thing, you've done this thing, but you're not confessing the sin of unbelief. When you stand up from your knees and you doubt the character of God, you think he's not really who he says he is in his word, that's the sin you need to confess now. Now go to him. Confess your unbelief. Confess this sin that keeps driving you back because your unbelief, remember, unbelief and pride are always a cycle. If you cannot believe that the blood of Jesus is enough to cover your sin, you're going to commit the sin of pride and try to supplement the blood of Jesus with your own works right? He said, go back to him, confess these root sins that are leading you to behaviors, and you'll find freedom. And she did, praise God. She understood, finally, it clicked, and she was able to break free from her sexual sin that had been keeping her in bondage for years. Now she understood the love of Christ. And I've had this happen over and over. This one person has allowed me to share her story, but many other people I've shared with who've experienced exactly the same thing that I'm telling you here as we find freedom in Christ. Now for her, she had been sinned against sexually herself. She had been sexually abused by someone else. And that man had led her into this cycle of shame. She felt terribly. She didn't enjoy being abused, but she needed so desperately to have some sort of male attention, she didn't know how to break free. Now she had gotten herself into a sin cycle. You see, shame initially about someone else's sin against her 
She hadn't known how to give that shame to Christ and realize you cannot be defiled by someone else's sin. Because of that shame, she had been caught up in guilt in committing her own sins of response. And that was how she had gotten trapped in this cycle. Everything in the process of guilt and shame is about giving us a sense of defilement. But guilt is, a is the response of faith. When I have a, a sense of conviction of sin, I have a choice. Am I going to respond in faith? Then this sense of conviction will become guilt. Or I'm, am I going to respond in unbelief, doubting the character of God? You see, it's our choice that makes it either guilt or shame based on how we respond to the sense of conviction. When I have a sense of conviction, I can come to Christ and say, Lord, here's what I've done. I'm allowing this sin to drive me to you. Like the woman caught in adultery, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to lay myself out, and I'm going to accept your cleansing, knowing I cannot do anything ever to possibly deserve it. I can never supplement the incredible sacrifice you've made for me. Or I can take the route of shame. I can't believe that God can cleanse me from this. I feel too terrible. Maybe I can just go escape from it for a while and then I won't feel so bad. Let me go see what's in the refrigerator. Let me go call my friend. Shame avoids repentance at all costs. It avoids confession. It looks for a way to get out. How can we break free from the shame of past sexual abuse? Jesus said, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. That's Matthew 15, 17 through 20. You see, God says that there is no other sin that someone can commit against you that can actually defile you. Many people, they feel that their, their secret room is defiled by someone else's sin against them. Jesus wants us to understand nothing that happens to you or comes into you against your will can actually defile you. So that sense of shame that you have if something has happened to you that you didn't appreciate or that someone else sinned against you, good news. You cannot be defiled by that. It's an imaginary defilement. It's Satan lying to you and saying that someone else's sin can defile you. Jesus says it's not true. Claim his promise. Trust him. He said you cannot be defiled by someone else's sin against you. What about if you've sinned yourself? You can always pray the prayer of Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. God wants to cleanse us. When our sin is always before us, it's because he wants to let us know, I want to set you free. I want to make you pure. I want to heal you so that you will never sense defilement again. Whatever is in your secret room, Whatever sense of defilement you may have in it, God wants to make it pure and free and clean today, right now. If you have a sense that someone else has sinned against you, just trust his promise. He said, don't worry, you're not defiled by that. You may have some grieving to go through. You may need to work through a process of finding healing and freedom. But the good news is you're not defiled. If you've sinned yourself, if there are things you need to confess to him, the beauty of 
The gospel is that anything you bring to him, he washes away. And you're white as snow right then. And then when you've brought it to him, when you've given him your sin, praise him. Praise him. Praise him no matter how you feel. Don't just thank him. There's a difference. Don't just say, thank you for the nice day. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. No, praise him for who he is. The gift of praise is a wonderful gift because it is not just about what he's given us, the focus on our gifts, but it's about who he is, the character of God. As you praise God, as you say, thank you that you are a God who loves me in my defilement. Thank you that you are a savior who came down here knowing how bad I was going to be and said, I'm going to cover her. I'm going to cover him. They're so priceless to me that even in their sins, even in the very depths of their filthiness, nothing can take away in the slightest bit from their value in my eyes. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who offers his blood to cover your sins. This is the God who washes you white as snow. Let's pray and thank God right now for being that kind of Savior. Father in heaven, you're so faithful. Thank you for your promises that cut the bonds to Satan and set us free from anything and everything. We pray now that your strength will be made perfect in our weakness, that you will set us free, that you will help us to cling to you, to love you so much that sin loses its attractiveness to us. Lord, I pray for a a pure secret room for every single person here, for every single person listening to this message. Help us, Lord, to find freedom and healing in you and to walk in the blaze of glory, from glory to glory, as we become more like you, day by day, changed into your image. Thank you for the gift of sex, Lord. Thank you for our sexuality that comes so close to our hearts and teaches us about your love. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.